As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Uh, Bruce, we have a special guest on this episode. That is new Baylor coach Dave Aranda, fresh off the LSU national title run, and now starting up in his new job. I think people will be really interested in that. Um, before we get to it, though, you, I think this is our first episode since uh, obviously the most tragic story in sports, Kobe Bryant's. Uh, helicopter accident and I just wanted to bring it up because you are in LA and I think people who have been following this story uh, even you know no matter how much you read no matter how much you watch I don't know that that really tells you how much how, how much he means to that city yeah, I think it. I actually didn't really grasp the depths of it until you start talking to people here. Uh, the Lakers are by far the biggest deal, especially that era Lakers team in Los Angeles. It's a star-driven market unlike any other place in the country. There is, or there was for a long time, and certainly for his run, there was no NFL team here. So it was Kobe. And what what I think you've seen a lot of um, on social media is how not just basketball players, but how many athletes, you know, kind of pattern their, their themselves and their mentality after Kobe's Mamba mentality. And another thing that, that I've kind of realized over the last year or two here is that his Mamba Academy in Southern California, there's a tons of athletes who go there. And so there's that piece of it, but, after um, on Saturday Sunday morning after the news you know starts to get out I remember um, you know just taking my son to the supermarket and you'd see a lots of people walking around in Kobe jerseys and we went to dinner that night and you saw more and it was just he had such a profound impact on the community and then I think one of the things that you started to see and I think this isn't unique to LA at all was people, saw the humanity of of the relationship with his daughter especially and when those videos started to come out 
I think, look, you and I both have daughters as well. And I, I don't think you need to be necessarily a parent to see that humanity, but I think it resonated even more. And just as, as you know, kind of a takeaway from this, um, I will remember Kobe Bryant now more for the shots of him with his daughter courtside post-basketball career than I will from any other any other basketball highlight. And and after it happened, I remember, I think it was Sunday night, it's all kind of blurred together now, I watched like Van Pelt's Sports Center, and they ran a montage of some of his greatest highlights, and it, it's jaw-dropping stuff. I mean, it's, you know, anybody you want to put it in, you know, Jordan-esque, whatever you want to say, I mean, it, it's up there with anybody. And, but again, my takeaway from this, the way I will now m- remember him is for those shots with his daughter and and just the sweetness of that of all of that that's that's how it really impacted me and I feel like that's how it's impacted a lot of people down here I mean for me personally um, I mean th- this hit hard and I'm not even you know I'm not a Lakers fan I'm barely an NBA fan I certainly watched a lot of probably a lot of him in the finals over the years but it's not like I was tuning in every night for 20 years to watch Kobe Bryant play basketball. And yet, I mean, the news just, it was shocking and it, and it, and I just, I was so upset about it. And, uh, I do think that that's a big piece of it. You know, we both have daughters, the, you know, there, there's been some, if you say silver linings to come out of this stuff, like the girl dad hashtag that was trending on, on Twitter and people and Instagram that actually a ESPN anchor L Duncan kind of, inadvertently touched off like it's just been a uh, it's been a cool thing to see just to see all these random people's pictures with their daughters and uh and to really get a insight into like you said uh like i didn't know that that kobe bryant had become so involved in 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 um you know his daughter's lives and daughter's basketball and women's basketball in general yeah yeah i had no idea so you know i agree with you Uh, i think that's that's going to be maybe the lasting. I hope the the more positive, lasting image of an otherwise really uh, heartbreaking story. And I, uh, I do hope some of the people who who have you know stepped into the girl dad hashtag kind of live that. Um, you know where it's like there, there. I think there's more to it than just hey, I love my daughter. And I think there's you know if you heard the way that he that she talked about living into his legacy and, and you know why does he need you know why does he need a son to do that i can do that i think that's something that you know i hope more people that resonates with more dads and it's not just the hashtag i mean this is this is a coincidence but uh my daughter is about to turn four and i've made a point of showing her that there's both boys and girls basketball on tv and you know she's only starting to grasp that concept and you know we were watching i turned on like whatever the big monday game was the other day with unc and nc state i think and she just goes daddy i like it better when it's the girls playing and i was like damn that's really cool uh and it's certainly you know the timing of it coming right on the heels of all this so um again uh just just devastating story and you know you're seeing it up close there in la um I don't have a good segue for this now, but definitely we wanted to bring that up. Uh, turning the page, um, you know, I think Dave Aranda is a guy who people were knew the name. I mean, he's been one of the top 
defensive coordinators in college football for several years, but maybe don't know the personality as much because he, you know, was at a program at LSU where they maybe only the coordinators maybe only talk to the media twice a year. So uh, I think if you if you've never gotten to really hear him speak or don't know much about his background, I think you'll really enjoy this interview. Okay, and we are pleased now to be joined by the new head coach of the Baylor Bears, Dave Aranda. Uh, coach, thanks for joining us today on the Audible. No, I appreciate you guys having me. Excited to be here with you all. Uh, so, so, Dave, I wanted to ask you. I spent some time with you last off season and, and got to know some of the people who have been really on this journey with you, and it's pretty remarkable. In that, I remember you told me the story about going to. Uh, the local strip malls and meeting with Navy recruiters and you were going to go to the Navy and enlisted. And because you'd had, I think five shoulder surgeries and couldn't pass the physical, you get denied and you don't know what you were going to, what was going to be next. You go to junior college and then uh, you really did all this stuff where you, you were kind of the guy in the background and find a mentor and Bill Williams and the, on the godfather of the coaching clinic kind of scene and, and paying to stay at, at, uh, you know, to make these trips to LSU and, and pe- crash on people's couches just to basically learn the business. So saying right. all that to get to this, at, when did it sink in that you are actually now a power five head coach after all this kind of grinding that you've had to do to get there? Yeah, I don't, I don't, that's a good question. I don't think it really has. I think it's still, I think your mindset when you, when you're kind of set that way from the beginning, I think that just kind of continues through. And, you know, I, uh, I know in the, in the hiring process and having the ability uh, now to hire uh, really good people and good coaches, you're looking for that too, that same type of uh, approach, you know, outside of the accolades, accomplishments and, uh, maybe numbers uh, that, you know, offensively or defensively, you're looking for the type of person and just like the approach and uh, kind of their, their story, and what they represent, where they're from and everything. And the more you can um, try to get people with a similar uh, type of build, um, I think the, the easier it is to kind of get together and go ahead and start building something of your own. And so, um, it's a good question. Yeah, I don't know. I think one of these days, I, 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 when I see these these coaches that uh, are kind of near the end of the their careers and they're maybe analysts or they're maybe visiting colleges and things, and, and just to try to stay to stay at, attached to it all. I think maybe at that point, you kind of look back and say this and say that. But I think prior to that, it's hard to do because uh, you know life is right behind uh, right behind you trying to and to catch up. So you always got to stay ahead of it. One of the first hires you made was bringing Ron Roberts there. For a lot of people in coaching, they know who he is. People probably around the Big 12 and then, uh, you know, maybe major college football maybe aren't as familiar with him. Uh, as, As a guy, I remember hearing the story from Ron back when he hires you, I think it's at Delta State. It's probably almost 15 years ago. And it sounded like you were on the brink of maybe leave in coaching because it's just you had a family and it's how do you make the economics of that work um, right. to, to have him with you now um, is it at all surreal to see where you were then and I mean because now it's a, a constant that you guys are together now uh, on this on this path yeah you know 
I, I, uh, I look at Ron as a great mentor to me. I, you know, there's, when I was at Cal Lutheran, uh, just going to school, I remember through Bill Williams, um, there in San Diego, Ron knew or knew about me and that. And, and I think that he tried to hire me about two, three times and it just never made it work. Yeah. You know, I think it was a Tusculum college and, uh, could never really make that jump. And then, when I was back at Cal Lutheran for the second time, I think the uh, the opportunity to go with him at, at Delta State was too great to pass up. And just, you know, the way that, that, that Ron can just have a whiteboard and a pen and just go to work, I think I've always tried to hold myself up to that standard. And, you know, there's a, there's a time where coaches would come in with books and drawings and things that they would copy and paste and that Ron would have it all up in his, um, all up inside of him. And when he was in front of a whiteboard, could just teach and relate and, and um, was just so impressive to see. And then to be able to work for Ron and the way he treated people, and the way he was able to develop young coaches and, you know, hold people accountable. Guys had fun while they were, while they were in the, the trials and tribulations of just a, a, a season was just really cool to see. I learned a lot during that process. I think I had so much fun coaching that year. I think it was 2007 at Delta State. So any opportunity that I'd have to be with Ron and have and give him the platform that, you know, that's because the other part of it is like, whether it's myself or it's Carl Scott or it's Pete Golden, guys that have been with Ron and that Ron really kind of helped mold and, and, uh, and, and help elevate. Ron has always kind of been in the background of it. You know, I, I, I see that Ron, I see Ron Roberts as the, as the origin for all of us, man. And, and for it to, for me to have the opportunity to give him an to a chance to show, uh, to show his, his stuff on a, on a um, big stage. I'm just so fired up to do that. Fired up for him. If I could bring you back to the present day here for a second, um, you know, you guys win the national championship at LSU and then you got to hit the ground running immediately um, at Baylor. But have you had a chance now? It's been a couple weeks uh, to think about what you, you and that team accomplished this past season, 15 and 0 national champions, obviously a remarkable run. Um, you know, when you're in it and you're preparing for the opponents every week, I know you're not, you're not thinking about uh, uh, history and legacy and all that, but with a few weeks distance, you know, describe what that was like to go through that run with, you know, with Joe Burrow and, and everything that kind of accompanied it, accompanied it. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like, um, it's a good question. It, it's come up quite a bit just in the recruiting visits with, uh, the high school coaches and some prospects. And, and uh, the best way I can explain it, I, I remember, uh, watching a movie like on, it's TBS or TNT or one of those, and it was it's a it's Denzel Washington is like a uh, he's trying to stop a train and the train's like let loose. I think it's Pennsylvania or something, and it, it's it's on the rails and it, it's no one at the no one in, in in front of it and it's just going however many miles per hour and you can't stop it. And that's what it felt like with us um, that last stretch. Um, it felt like with like whatever was going to be put in front of us that no, nothing stopping us. So whether that was a meeting, we would have a meeting and it just felt right, man. You know, whoever would, if, if I was talking or Coach O is running the meeting, um, 
Coach Insminger's running a meeting, it, it just it it would you'd come out of it and go, man, it, you know, so and so said exactly the right thing. The timing was right. It just felt like, you know, we couldn't you couldn't have that meeting any better than that. You'd go to practice and um, we would get 20 plays on defense, and the offense would get 20 plays. Every play they ran was a touchdown on offense. Every you know, we got a play. It was a sack. You know, we got a play. It was a pick six. You, know, you walk away going, man, the energy in that practice, the, the execution, we can't get it any better than that. You know, and then we would have a, a walkthrough at the hotel prior to prior to one of those last couple those last couple games, and that walkthrough, you know, you're trying to test, to kind of see what guys are at, their uh, awareness and their uh, um, their appreciation for you know their their job description and what you're asking them to do, and everyone's on point. There is nothing that nobody missed the mark. Everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. You walk away going, man, we can't have a walkthrough better than that, man. We are ready. So that you, you just felt that the whole, whole way. And then what was great about it was that, and I think uh, I give Coach O a lot of credit for this, and then I think the, the, the illustration of it all was Joe, and just the way he handled it, is that what was great about just that feeling of the day-to-day was that no, but there was no boasting, there was no talking, there was no, everything was just held so close to the vest. It was just a kind of a quiet, very strong confidence that, uh, man, we are, we are a runaway train, man. And if you're on the tracks, you better get out the way. It's an interesting analogy. I remember talking to you after, I think it was the Oklahoma game, and you, you know, it seemed like you were just taken in the celebration. And, and I felt like, you know, at that point, being around the team a little bit, it was like, OK, there's more work to be done. We're not going to get too excited about this. But you you talked about what Ensminger and Joe Brady and certainly Joe Burrow had there. And you described the offense as like a virus and how right. they operate. That's um, right. Can you as a as this guy who has spent so many hours pouring over film over your career, kind of explain why they were able to do things maybe that felt differently or or how you, right. as a defensive guy who had to deal with it in the spring and then saw that thing grow, what right. it what made it so potent? Right. Well, it really helped me see um, see defense in a, in a new way. I think, I think to frame all of it, I would look at just my experience with, or to start, I guess, would be um, – my experience in the Big Ten. And so, like, in that league, and I, I was talking with some coaches that are in that league still, and I think they still feel it's it's similar today, whereas if we were to play Iowa, let's say, uh, we're anticipating tight ends, three-man surfaces, we're anticipating stretch plays, stretch, 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 they're going to run the boot off the stretch eventually. It's one of those things where you know what's coming, and uh, you have to kind of you got to stop it. And if you're playing Wisconsin. Um, it's going to be power, 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 and the power pass is coming. You know what's coming. You have to stop it. And I think there's a fair amount of that. Um, I think uh, throughout that league, and you know, I, I've I've always had a big belief in that, in that you know, there's an identity, and, and this is us, and all of it. I think there's a there's a, a fine line. I think that. Um, that I see now, in terms of in terms of, um, of, of recognizing a fine line, when I when I look at, at that type of philosophy, and I credit 
uh, Brady and Insminger and them uh, for that. Uh, I mean that like this. So what what they did was they would look at like a certain formation. Uh, let's say it's a, a two by two double formation. They would on their board, and that, a lot of this came from more uh, from uh, Jim Moorhead. They put on their board. They would put how a defense is going to their number one way to line up versus this two by two formation. And say it's single high look. And so, okay, so at a single high, you know, predominantly they'll be in an over front. There's not a lot of movement. There's not a lot of blitz. It's press coverage. Okay, so versus this look, we like these two things. These are the two things that beat that 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 way of lining up that beat this up, these two plays. Okay, then the, the second way they line up to this formation is a quarter, quarter, half look. So now the middle of the field is open. There's a safety on the half to the other side. So we can, we can hold this safety and exploit the middle of the field. So our two plays that we like versus this way of them lining up is this and this. And then maybe the, the third way is like a zero blitz look. And, you know, they, have, they do blitz. And when they blitz, it, number seven over there, he's the, kind of the tail. He'll align like this. That tells you it's blitz. And so we want to get the ball out and, these are the two best plays that are versus that. And so that whole approach is way different. There's not, there's not a lot of people that look at it like that. And so I think um, like in spring, we were, we were seeing it. We would line up a certain way and man, it's like, God, that's like the perfect play for how we're lined up. And we would be lined up a different way. And then, geez, oh, you know, the middle of the field, that's the perfect play for that. We finally, you know, we're fed up with this. We're going to blitz them. And then all of a sudden the ball spits out. And that's like the, you know, Clyde Edwards Hilaire on a linebacker. That's like the best matchup they got. They just went to it. So all of those things were thought out, and it was just that approach of just going right to it. And so um, that combined with Saints passing game and everything else just made for a deadly combination. There's times where you're you're watching LSU offense and you're going, you know, um, we call it, no, who's got that guy? That, wow, that guy is so wide open. It's because they're attacking the structure of defense. You know, the way, the way the defense is built, they're attacking the, the foundation of it, you know, the way that the, the, the connective tissue, and that's kind of what we, that was the, the virus type of, uh, you know, thought right there. But on defense, we started using that. And, and so on, same thing, putting up formations and going, hey, out of these formations, this is what they do. And so what's the best thing we have to take advantage of what they do? Like we'll have calls that will play versus every formation in every situation. And that's our base, and our base really ain't going to change. But if we wanted to take advantage of this formation and these two or three plays they run, what's the best thing we can do? And then we would and, uh, we would run those things. And I would wait to kind of see them get lined up, and I'd call that that showed up in the Georgia game and the Oklahoma game and the Clemson game. And I thought it gave us some, uh, some, some juice, some ability to make big plays there. I think, you know, Grant Delpit had a sack versus Georgia. Um, I thought we had some pressure in the A&M game and doing it up like that. But that, that's kind of just from their approach, just flipping it the other way. And so I, I credit those guys. That's, it's uh, kind of an ingenious way of looking at it. So I know from talking to your your old friend, Coach Wells, who's now your competitor in, in the Big 12, that yes. he said your wife and your family would come over to their house. And before he knew it, whatever was going on, you were picking his brain and you guys were talking football. And it yeah. just he just said, that's just how Dave is. He's always wired for that. It sounds like you've done already a lot of 
reverse engineering of kind of what the LSU offense was was operating yes. on. Um, yes. What has it been like for you now to have a little distance from it? Is that the way you see it? Well, obviously Joe Burrow is gone is going on to the NFL, and Joe Brady is back in the NFL. Steve is still there, but right. I mean. Is it just almost like lightning in a bottle, or is it is there going to have to be an evolution of that? I mean, where do you see what the LSU offense was in 2019, and is that how how hard is that going to be to replicate? I don't know if if anything really will match that year, and that's not to say that there can't be great success, that there can't can't be. Um, continued success with the offense particularly and that's not to say there can't be championships and that I think what the you know the overall kind of the broad reaching philosophy that we were you know we just got done talking about and their 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 system I think all of those concepts are embedded uh there with with coachee and um you know the offensive staff that's there and so what what made LSU so unique um, in part last year was just the pieces that they had. And so whether it was Clyde or, you know, or um, say if you want to double the receivers, you know, who's covering Moss? If you want to, um, you know, cloud up to the side of the running back to take away Clyde, then who's covering the Z, you know, away from the rotation? And so there's just so many weapons that you just couldn't, you know, you couldn't, it's difficult to take away all five. And then based upon the, the look and, you know, the, um, the, the, the non-disguise that, in, in, that, that always happens later in the game, you know, Joe's able to see it and, you know, uh, Brady and Insmere kind of had it locked down in terms of, hey, they're in this, so we're running that. And so I think, like, the, the answer is just so so built in. And so I think the 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 point counterpoint all that will be there it's just going to be the the lsu's ability to use the skill that they now have um with the receivers returning with new running backs with um you know they've got a a generational talent at tight end that i know is probably going to be featured even more than than moss was and so i think like their ability to kind of build it around their um their talent is going to be it's going to create and allow for um, for innovation and just new ways of kind of running the same systematic approach, which is exciting for them. So when it came time to put together your staff at Baylor, you hired a very well-known guy, Larry Fedora, as your OC. Everybody remembers him as the UNC head coach, and and he's had a lot of success uh, on, with offenses throughout his career. But you also brought over uh, George Munoz, who was an analyst, you know, working very closely with uh, all the offensive guys at LSU the last couple of years. Is your intent or your your hope to, um, you know, basically bring that that LSU offense that was so successful over to Baylor, or will it be, um, you know, more what Coach Fedora has been doing? I think it's going to be a combination of it. I, I think you know this is Coach Fedora's offense. Um, I guess number one, but then I know in talking with coach, he's, he's very, very interested. And, you know, when, uh, when, uh, Larry and George have gotten together, it's been football, football, football. And so I've been trying to 
get close because I'm just fascinated to hear it all. And, and I think like the, the both those guys just being as bright as they are, and you know, Larry's uh, experience and his 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 own innovation throughout the years and his own accolades. And, you know, for for a guy like that to have the uh, the um, the heart to, be able to say, man, I want to go to, to to study with George and kind of see what fits what we've done in the past and all of it. So like, that's just really exciting for me. Um, but you know, I think you know, George is going to bring such a um, is going to bring a real professional approach, and um, whether it's as a recruiter or as a position coach, but you know, also as kind of the the, the uh, system and philosophy of what LSU did, you know, he's, he was right at the ground floor with all that. So he, he knows that as well as anybody. And, you know, I know that Larry's often interested in that. So I think the, the ability to kind of create something special is definitely there. I'm excited to, to be a part of it. Dave, you've had the, uh, now that you're the head coach, you've had some interesting head coaches you've worked for. The first one, yeah. I think in major college football was you were a GA at Texas tech for Mike Leach. Uh, and then you, your last job as an assistant is with Ed Ogeron. I'm not sure there's, those are the two most different (laughs) human beings I've ever met. And then you also have Les Miles in there. Who's, who's a unique personality. Um, so what is your head coaching style? What do you think it's going to be like? And what will you take from some of these, some of these guys you've, you've worked for? Yeah, I think, um, mine has always been connect on personal level. Um, it's always been, you know, for the players to build it, to see kind of where your heart is, um, to know that, um, you've got their back, that, um, you know, you recognize that it's a player's game, players play the game. They know that, um, you're in it for them. Um, you're supporting them and you're putting them in the best position to be successful I think um, when it's that when it's that way, you can push and prod to get the to get the the results that you that we're all looking for. I think the relationships and the the trust and the commitment and caring have to come first. But then you know I look at like um, our brows and his motivation of 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 his team and that's right up there with, with Coach O and his motivation of his team. And then, you know, I look at, I look at Gary Anderson and his ability to inspire, um, his ability to inspire people and to get them to, um, you know, wrap their arms around them and, and uplift the team and get them to play at a level that was higher than what they thought they could be. Paul Chris and his ability to be able to be involved on offense, but then surround himself with real competent people that that all work together and I don't know if there's a staff that was more cohesive and together than the staff I was on at Wisconsin with Paul Chris. So there's there's and you know, I look at Greg McMack and at Hawaii and just his speeches and fiery game time. You know, he would just all you know, those the new Rockney speeches and stuff Coach Mack would give and so there's all the the variety of coaches, man. You just take so much from them and you can see that everyone's successful being who they are, you know, and they're not, they're not having to pretend to be somebody else. And I think that's probably the biggest takeaway of all of it. 
So we, I'm not going to ask you to give a full scouting report, but you know, a unique thing here is that you saw Baylor uh, on tape, I would assume, you t- at least two of their games when you were prepping for Oklahoma yes. uh, before the Peach Bowl. What are your thoughts on the, the team that you are uh, inheriting from Matt Rule? Yeah, so I, I, you know, when you watch the tape, you can see uh, cohesiveness. You could see great leadership. You could see um, great heart. And so, you know, I, I've, I've told this story to a couple of uh, our coaches here. So I'm flying from Baton Rouge to Waco on the Thursday that I accepted the job, and I bring up I bring up this story. I remember Rocky three, and and so. Um, Rocky loses to Clever Lang, and I think Mickey dies shortly thereafter. His trainer, and he's kind of taken in by Apollo Creed. He goes to Apollo's gym, and he walks in that gym for the first time. I think his wife's with him. It's kind of his entourage and that. And, um, you know, he's walking in the gym, and he's looking, and all these fighters are looking at him. And they've got that look in their eye and everything, and there's just like a chip on their shoulder. There's a fight in their eye and all of it. That was the look that I got the first time I walked in front of the team, you know, and so, and I respect that wholeheartedly because, you know, I know there is a great love between them and Coach Rule, and, you know, they fought for Coach Rule, and it's one of those things where college football nowadays, you know, you win 11 games, you have a, a great career, you believe in everything, and, you know, change happens. And so um, that's something you can work with when you're, when you're around a team like that that, that just buys in and can gives and sell and gives everything um, to the coaches. And so for me to be a part of, to walk into that and be a part of that, I couldn't be more excited. And so, you know, step by step, guy by guy, just getting with them and, and visiting and letting them know um, who I am and my vision. I think we're, we're building it to where it needs to be um, just with, with my stamp on it. So I'm excited about that process. All right, Coach. Well, we appreciate your time, and thanks for joining us on the Audible. Obviously, congrats on the new job, and and we'll definitely uh, look forward to seeing you in Waco. Well, I appreciate you guys having me anytime. Okay, thanks, Coach. Thank you so much. See ya. Bye-bye. Hey, sports fans. We have a daily sports podcast we want to tell you about from Wondery and The Athletic. It's called The Lead. Every weekday morning, The Lead brings you a deep dive into the biggest sports stories of the day, from the Athletics' all-star team of local and national sports reporters. Stories like where did the 49ers' new star running back Raheem Mostert come from? Or what can Zion Williamson do for the Pelicans? So if you're looking for the full story behind last night's scores and today's hot takes, make sure you subscribe to The Lead from Wondery and The Athletic. Okay, well, we appreciate Coach Aranda. And now let's get to the mailbag. As always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Stu, our first question is from Mark in Pennsylvania. Six different programs won a championship in the 2010s decade. Auburn, Alabama, Clemson, FSU, LSU, and Ohio State. Which of these teams do you think is least likely to win a title in the 2020s? Additionally, which program that did not win one in the last decade is most likely to win one in the 2020s? And here are Mark's suggestions. Florida, Georgia, Michigan, Oklahoma, Oregon, Penn State, Texas, USC, or somebody else. Stu, start with the first one. This is a great question. Uh, yeah, so let's start with the, the which one won't win one. I got to say Auburn. 
Now, you know, they're certainly closer to it right now than Florida State is, but I think, I mean, two things. First of all, when Florida State has it going, they have been able to compete at that level more consistently than Auburn has. Certainly Auburn rose up and won that one in 2010 and then right went right back down and then rose up and played for one in 2013 and then hasn't really come close to that since. Um, but also, obviously, they're sitting in the same division with Alabama and LSU, um, Jimbo Fisher at A&M, and Florida State, if they can get it going, it's really just Clemson that they need to take down. So that's my answer. What about you? I'm going to agree with you. Um, I I mean, Florida State would have been the next likely one there, but I would lean towards uh, I would lean towards Auburn as well um, for that. Obviously, a lot can change in a decade. A lot can change in two years. But in that side, on the other part of it, I think this is a lot harder. This is (laughs) also an interesting part of the question. Um, You know, when I looked at this, and I, I want to start with this point of it. It, it may be in the off season or at the beginning of the year. I remember I felt like I said this on the podcast at least once, which is if I'm a Georgia fan, the way they recruited, if they don't win a national title either in 2019 or 2020, I am really, really disappointed. Now, the 2019 part was going to be, okay, they should be in the running. All the things were lining up. And the 2020 part was going to be under the assumption that Jake Fromm was coming back, Tua was leaving, um, and that was going into this this past season, given the way they recruited. Now, fast forward, they've lost a bunch of offensive linemen. Um, the program still has recruited really well. I still think they're a top 10 program, but I don't feel as strong about them being a national title contender this year as, as I did five months ago. Um, and having said all that, I'm not saying I, I don't think they would be my first choice on this. If I were to look at this, I would say right now, of all the schools that are mentioned in this group, George is the best position to, to be that answer. And if I were to rank them, and I think I'm going to have you try to do this too, I would go in this order. I would go Georgia 1, uh, Oklahoma 2, and my third one is either USC or Penn State. And I'm going to say USC. Um, Georgia, to me, is the, is, the, is the answer of most likely just because they, they are one of the – and we've, I've talked about it many times, right? There's only so many programs that recruit at a level where they'd be able to win the national title. Georgia is certainly doing that. Uh, they haven't, you know, they haven't taken that last uh, – step up the ladder with Kirby Smart. And I would say that there's a limited window. You know, they've got a couple more years here where they should be right in the mix. And I really like the Todd Monk and hire as OC. But if they don't do it within a few years, you know, at some point the the luster will wear off. They won't be the hot recruiting school anymore, et cetera. But they're certainly best positioned as of today. There's no way to say we have no idea who the coaches will be. We don't have to deal with the playoff format will be. There's just no way to know what this – what these programs will look like by the end of the decade. But if you're asking me to rank it in terms of most likely, I think I would put Florida there next because I do think they've got a really good coach and they too recruit, especially on the defensive side of the ball. I would put Oklahoma right after that. Obviously they've been in the playoff the last several years. They're, they're not far off. I think I'd actually go, and then I go Penn state uh, also not far off. 
But then I think I'd go Texas. And again, I don't know if it's going to be with Tom Herman or not. But again, that's one of those programs where they can recruit at that level on both sides of the ball. Uh, if they have the right coach, the pieces are all in place. And then I think rounding it out, um, who do I have left here? I'm surprised. I am surprised. First of all, Oregon has recruited at that level right now, um, I think. And second of all, whether it's Clay Helton or not, I mean, you're basically under the guise that USC is going to botch the coach, head coaching Well, hire. It's not Clay Helton. Why Why is USC? I mean, USC, think about who you've, you've rattled off everybody USC, but them. Let's just say that we it doesn't happen under for USC under Helton. It doesn't happen for Texas under Herman. Why would USC be any better position than Texas for the next one? I'll tell you why. Because USC has way less competition for talent if they have the right coach than Texas does. Texas still has uh, Texas A&M. Everybody goes in to recruit Texas, and they're a lot closer to it. Whether and certainly, you know what? A lot of kids are. If you're a, if you're a uh, grow up in Texas and you want to play offensive football, you may want to go play for Lincoln Riley, no matter who the head coach is there. And it's not that far away. USC, you got to make a leap to go somewhere. Yeah, maybe you know Clemson's going in there. Certainly LSU is going in there. Ohio State is going in there. But those are long distance. Uh, moves. I think if USC had, you know, has a head coach that people are buying in on, to me, USC is is definitely a stronger answer there than I would say some of the other ones on this. Or then rounded out Oregon uh, and Michigan, and Michigan being not really in the same category as the others at this point in terms of their ability to win a national title. Um, Robert Madol from. Why do you say? Th- wait, 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 wait. Let me. Oh boy, we're gonna go back down this road. One more second on this. No, no, no. So you're not that sold on Tom Herman as a head coach. I know you're not sold on Jim. Harbaugh I haven't given up on Tom Herman to be clear. What is the big difference? Okay, you've given yes. up on Jim Harbaugh though. Okay, maybe that's all the answer we need then. Okay. Uh, Robert Maydahl, Seattle. I love the show. While Oregon made a splashy OC hire, that would be Joe Moorhead. My Washington Huskies went off the beaten path for an NFL assistant, John Donovan, that didn't even make Bruce's NFL assistant to watch list. Please talk me off the ledge and tell me UW will have a functioning offense next year. I don't know. I mean, if you, uh, John Donovan did not have a great run at Penn State. I think he did pretty well with what he had at Vanderbilt. I, um, I'm curious to see what – one of the things from that, that – uh, that story that I did that Robert references is guys really can develop a lot more in their NFL experience. Jeff Halfley certainly did from the time he left Rutgers and spent over five or six years in the NFL before he came back to Ohio state. Uh, It's entirely possible. John Donovan has done that. And look, I think if you're a a Washington fan and clearly Robert is in Seattle, I, I would think, you got to trust Jimmy Lake and say, all right, Jimmy Lake's a defensive guy. He, a lot of times the guy who is the head coach who's a defensive-minded guy is going to hire the guy he thinks who does stuff that gives him the most trouble. So let's see what John – I'm sure he's gotten John Donovan on the board and is sold that John Donovan's going to do that. Now, whether it's K.J. Costello is the trigger man or whoever he's going to have, um, the quarterback play has been – has not been good enough. I mean, let's start that in the past game. They've had good running backs. They've been really good on defense. But, you know, for all the arm talent, which you had with Jacob Eason, 
it was very inconsistent, and I think they've got to get better at, at, at developing who the quarterback's going to be. And I think if John Donovan can show he can do that, then the, the program has a chance to take another big step forward. And I think you said this a little bit just a second ago about Georgia. Um, Georgia was not able to t- hasn't yet been able to take that next big step. I think in this case for Washington, it's they probably got to take the step to get to where Georgia's at and then take the other step. Uh, is John Donovan the guy to, to do that? I don't know. It, it is a little bit of a leap at this point. I, I mean, to be to be blunt, I don't know. Do you, do you see it any other way still? Back to the podcast in a second. We talk about physical fitness a lot, but there's another side of the game that's just as important. I'm talking about mental fitness. Calm, the number one app for sleep and meditation, has teamed up with LeBron James to help you train your mind. LeBron and Calm know that your mind is like any other muscle in your body. And Calm can help you train your brain so you sleep better, have less stress, and perform at your best. And if you head to calm.com slash audible, you'll get 40% off a Calm premium membership. For a limited time, our listeners can join LeBron in using Calm with a 40% discount to an annual membership at calm.com slash audible. Unlock content to help you focus, ease stress, and sleep better. Get started at calm.com slash audible. That's calm.com slash audible. The word I would use about that hire is underwhelming. There were a lot of, and maybe that's because at one point, names like Kellen Moore were being thrown around, but of all the people for Jimmy Lake to pick, that that just kind of came out of nowhere to me. Um, the KJ Costello, sub potential KJ Costello subplot is really interesting. He uh, visited there or was going to visit there and... This is the new era, right, where coaches can't block guys from going to certain schools and and obviously grad transfers are playing a bigger and bigger role. But off the top of my head, I cannot remember one where the starting quarterback went and transferred and will, if, if this happens, will immediately turn around and play the team that he transferred from. Uh, I looked it up. He made two starts against Washington in his career, including a big upset in uh, 2017. Can can you think of anything like that? I can. Um, I'm I'm not sure how much Michigan and Iowa played, but in Jim Harbaugh's first uh, yes. year, um, that happened. So again, I don't know if they they weren't uh, in the same division, but they were in the same conference. Good call. Good call. I should have remembered that. From Scott Armstrong in Louisville, North Carolina, Bruce and Stu, recently news broke that Virginia Tech's Justin Fuente was going to interview for the Baylor head coaching job. He didn't take the job, and his only public comment was a three-word tweet, 2020, let's go. Some fans and local media have commented that he at least owed the fans an I'm staying press conference. I don't know what has happened with other coaches, Mike Leach in Tennessee, for example. What should coaches do when their name gets attached to a job, but they don't take it? Thanks, Scott Armstrong, Louisville, North Carolina. Good question. Stu, what do you think they should do? Good question. Well, I think an I'm staying press conference, would. would I, I can't imagine somebody would do that. Uh, that's, that's a little much. But the three-word tweet, like the answer is somewhere in between. And this was, you know, certainly sometimes coaches' names get attached to a job rumor, but it didn't actually get very far. This one got far, and and I think people are genuinely at Virginia Tech wondering, because it wasn't an obvious step up, why? Why was he interested in that job? And uh, it would be good if he at least 
whenever he's next going to talk to the media, I don't know if that's signing day next week or sometime after that, to just address it and, and let people know what, what went on there. Because otherwise, I don't know that this isn't an easy one for, for them to just kind of forget. Like, okay, Justin Fuente, he's a hokey. We can move on. It makes you wonder, obviously, how committed he is to Virginia Tech and is he, I mean, Mike Leach. Mike Leach had accepted the Tennessee job. Two years after almost taking that Tennessee job, did indeed go out, yeah. So that it seems, it seems to me that if he was that interested in the Baylor job, that he's if he has a good season this year and his name starts getting mentioned again, that he's going to be interested in those as well. Like that wasn't a, a one-time thing necessarily. So he would be, I think, wise to address it at least in like I said, in one press conference answer. What do you think? I don't know. I'm not sure how much is gained from that. Uh, honestly, just thinking big picture wise. From everything I've heard, Justin Fuente is a guy from that part of the country. And would he be tempted? Because his name came up as a possibility that Arkansas was interested in him. Uh, to go back there, I don't see the Oklahoma job coming open anytime soon with Lincoln Riley there. The other part of this was probably like two months ago, there were a lot of probably Virginia Tech fans who were kind of over Justin Fuente. They were struggling. They obviously bounced back a little bit from around midseason. But, so I think there was that. And the Baylor job is an attractive one. They have a lot of money. I think Matt Rule left it in a good shape. So I think there was some appeal for it. Um, and in some ways, I think the Big 12, it's, it's interesting because the ACC right now to me is clearly the fifth best league. But it also has the, probably the closest thing to a sure thing powerhouse in it with Clemson, the way they're recruiting. Whereas in the Big 12, I think you'd look at it and go, all right, it's not to say there's a bunch of pushovers in there, but um, there's a big, to me, there is a sizable difference right now between who the top dog is being uh, Oklahoma's gettable in a game. Clemson is a, that's a heavy lift to go, to go toe to toe with them. So um, again, I, I, I can see why why fans feel like maybe they're owed more of an explanation, and hopefully, this off season and some gathering, Justin Fuente will kind of will kind of illuminate that a little more. Okay, and finally, Kyle Wilson in Buckhannon, West Virginia, says, "Thank God West Virginia was able to nab Neil Brown last off season because I feel like he would be Florida State's coach right now. Otherwise, it looks like he has the program on the right path. But what do you guys think?" I could not have been more impressed this season. That's a bold statement given I think they went 4-8. and eight. P.S. <clears throat> have you guys ever tried pepperoni rolls while in West Virginia? You've been there more often than I have, have you? Uh, I have. Uh, I've not only tried them in West Virginia um, a few years, not this past year, but I want to say two years ago, the Mountaineer mascot, um, who was a lot more likable Mountaineer mascot than the 140 and I ran into at a bar <laughs> one night, who was really arrogant and kind of, whatever but this guy his i want to he brought a like kind of a um a box of pepperoni rolls to big 12 media days and he was just like he's this very um genuine kid who was like you know i'm proud of being from west virginia and this is a kind of a local delicacy and they you know especially if they're a um they're tasty i mean there's if you haven't tried them i would recommend them by the way do you know what that town kyle wilson's from is uh, best known media-wise for? I do not. Uh, the Blue Ribbon Basketball Magazine originated from that town. Really? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm dating myself here, but like, 
I remember having when I was in like I don't know if it was high school. I used to you'd have to send your money to to Buckhannon, West Virginia. I think that's how it's pronounced. But and you did yeah. that. You were a Blue Ribbon uh, subscriber. Oh yeah, that thing that thing was like the size of the phone book. I want to say Chris Wallace might be from there. Um, I don't know. I'm dating myself on this, but uh, right now. The, probably if 40's listening to the podcast I've given him two reasons to listen and he might be the only one who's still with us but I once um, freelanced for Blue Rib I once uh, many 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 years ago I I did like the Big Ten basketball previews for them I mean that thing in the day and age and I, I haven't seen it in a long time and, and I'm not as into college basketball by any stretch but um, it, before the internet like where it was so hard to get information on on teams that thing was was I mean I would look at that for like a week and and just pour over it uh, anyway to get back to his to, to Kyle's question just and this comes back from the guy I got to know when he was a head coach at Troy I just think he's really good at developing people and developing staff and players I think he's going to be a really successful head coach I, I also say that he took over West Virginia. Dana Holgerson was getting out at the right time. They had a lot of players going on to the NFL. I just think it was, it was going to be, uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better thing. And I think they'll take another step forward. I think in 2021, I bet you West Virginia is a top 25 team. I think you got the right guy. I think they need a developmental guy. He's that guy. Um, you know, to me, and I, there's probably somebody else I'm forgetting, but in that cycle last year, I thought there was a couple of really terrific mid-major candidates. He was one. Scott Satterfield was the other. Satterfield obviously had a marvelous first season at Louisville. But I think you agree with me on that. Those are um, just reading your coaching coaching report card stuff from earlier in the week on the site. I know you are not a big fan of the hire of Eli Drinkwitz. And setting aside, I don't know if I agree with you as much on that, but I do think this year didn't have as many guys who are like the Neil Satterfield category who are like, oh, yeah, I think those guys will be successful once they once they go up to power five jobs. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, I noticed that my grades were not in, in on the whole as generous as the year before, um, which would speak to that point. I don't think we learned all that much because the expectations were so low for West Virginia going into the season and, and we knew the situation he was inheriting that there's there's not much to be read into that person I think we knew it would be a rebuilding season now let's see what happens in year two so most of what I you know what confidence I have in Neil Brown still goes back to what happened at Troy more so than anything that happened in the first season at West Virginia so um, I, I admire the optimism West Virginia, it's, it's, it's interesting that he makes that Florida State comparison because they play each other, I believe, to start the season, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm curious to see what shape both programs are in at that point. All right, send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. I know we're not necessarily on as regular schedule as we were during the season when we were doing it every Monday. You're just going to have to bear with us for a little bit. It's just uh, schedules are a little... Um, less predictable than they are when you're in the uh, uh, the week-in, week-out kind of programmed coverage of the season. Uh, but we will certainly, I think, you know, we've said this before, the mailbag becomes a big part of our show in the offseason uh, when there's not necessarily big news going on in college football. We'll see you next time. It's Super Bowl week, Kavitha. 
Yeah, man. I mean, Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs just went off during these playoffs. And that Niners defense is just stout. Right. And the one guy everyone will be watching closely is the dude who torched the souls of Packers fans and basically gave Jimmy Garoppolo the day off. Mostert, left side. Another first down carry and more. How about a touchdown? His fourth touchdown of the ball game. Raheem Mostert ran for 220 yards and four touchdowns against Green Bay. This is a guy who was cut by six different NFL teams and who, before the season, was mostly seen as a special teams player. And so today, we're going to speak with The Athletic's Tim Kawakami, who has been covering the 49ers for years, about how much of a surprise Mostert's performance really was, if he was a one-game wonder, and how surfing has influenced the way he runs. The wave hits and then he's gone. It's a very interesting kind of combination of a surfer running back. From Wondery and The Athletic, I'm Anders Kelto. And I'm Kavitha Davidson. This is The Lead. It felt like something great was happening. There was just something about the emotion and that moment. Yeah, the failures of the past don't matter because we've got this guy. Are you kidding? That's not good news. This isn't a story where you interview the athlete and go home. It stays with you. So, Tim, Raheem Mostert's performance against the Packers was truly historic. What was his reaction after the game? He was like, you know, yay, Raheem, did you know it was one of the greatest games a running back ever had in the NFC Championship game? No, I did not, actually, and... Truthfully, for you to even say that right now is like, I, I'm i still shocked. Like, I can't believe that. That's the kind of guy he is, the kind of guy a lot of these players are. But especially Raheem had been bouncing around from league, from team to team. Really wasn't thought of as a running back until the 49ers just started plugging him in there. And he just never had a bad run. He just never went for less than five yards. So you might as well just keep giving it to him. Somehow the handoff into the arms of Mostert. He's gone. Touchdown, San Francisco. You know, just he still acts like a journeyman. He acts like a guy who was a special teams player who isn't going to be a featured back while he's putting up some of the, you know, mega numbers in the playoffs. They, they all treat themselves and they look at the world like they're a bunch of journeymen. It's, so it's very, very refreshing. Uh, and I think it is a large part of how they've kind of coalesced together. They all, nobody's bigger than anybody else in that locker room. Even the guy who goes for 200 and whatever yards in the NFC Championship game. He's a surfer, right? He is a surfer. First of all, you got no wetsuit on. You're just straight trunks. You ride longboard, shortboard. You've been to Mavericks yet? Like, like, walk us through the surfing and when you started and how you got into that. You know, I started uh, surfing when I was about 13 or 14, and uh, you know, it's just been a big hit for me, uh, going out there on the waves and riding the waves like you see in this video, man. Um, just enjoying the, the the atmosphere and the water, and I, I want to go to Mavericks. So you know, almost got a surfing contract from Billabong. He's, you know, Florida waves. So out here in California, we're not sure what that is, but uh, <laughs> I guess they get waves out there. And he's certainly, he runs like a surfer. Mostert in the backfield. He gets it. Samuel out in front. Touchdown. 
kind of feels the crest. He kind of like glides towards to where the hole is and he catches the next wave and there he's gone. And guys, don't expect him to get past him and to get past him. It's not like a classic running back. He's not like Walter Payton juking, juking, juking. He's kind of kind of filling the moment, feeling where it is. The wave hits and then he's gone. It's a very interesting kind of combination of a surfer running back. And uh, do you think he's been enjoying his time in the spotlight here? <laughs> yes, I think he has. He understands what it's like not to be any part of this, to be a, such an afterthought to your cut by five teams. He understands that, you know, a world where he's not a star. He's lived in that world. So he's going to enjoy it a little bit. Again, I don't think he's seeking out crazy fame, but these guys are all kind of enjoying it. Right now, they're all kind of like, this is pretty good. This is pretty good right now. And so, Tim, Mostert's performance seemed to come out of nowhere. But did you foresee this? You know, I don't think you ever foresee a guy going for 200 plus and then NFC Championship game unless he's, you know, a top, top pick. He certainly wasn't. But he's been impressive. Every time he's carried the ball, he's been impressive. He's been a star special teamer. So you knew he had some skills, but you saw something building there. And you sometimes running backs just come out of nowhere. You, this, the Shanahan's are famous for that. Pulling some guy out of the fifth round, he runs for a thousand yards. Mostert is in that category. They've tapped into something with him. Kyle Shanahan recognized it. So he's been good for most of the season. Well, Tim, thanks for joining us. And it'll be interesting to see if Mostert and the 49ers can pull it off on Sunday. All right. I'll see you. Talk to you later. If you enjoy the audible please subscribe on apple podcasts google play spotify wherever you get your podcasts leave us a review and a rating if you could too it helps us get the word out our producer is john hayes our theme song is dangerous by kevin and the octaves you can download their music on spotify or apple music follow me on twitter at sl mandel follow bruce at bruce feldman cfb And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link, theathletic.com slash theaudible. That's 40% off your subscription to The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.